Welcome to the Beyond Ordinary Woman podcast. Every two weeks, we'll post a podcast version of one of our free training videos, but you can access them now at beyondordinarywomen.org. This episode or series includes downloadable information on our website, beyondordinarywomen.org. Go to resources on the main menu and click on podcast slash video extras. Enjoy the podcast. Hi, and welcome to Beyond Ordinary Women. Our podcast and video episode today is Gender in Scripture, and our guest today is Dr. Sandra Glon. A little bit about Sandra. She earned her THM at Dallas Theological Seminary and her PhD at the University of Texas at Dallas. She's currently teaching classes and courses at DTS as a professor. Some of those classes involve writing, medieval art, spirituality, gender, and sexual ethics. And she's the author of more than 20 books, but you can read her full bio at beyondordinarywomen.org. I have a lot of respect for Sandra, and I'm so glad that you're joining us for this topic today. It seems to get a little more complicated gender and scripture uh, with each passing year. So I'm really glad that you're here to bring a little more clarity around some of this confusion that we might have. Glad to be here. So welcome. Thank you. So as I was looking through some written things on this topic, one of the things I noticed is the term sex and gender are used frequently in our culture. I mean, we hear them every day on the news, read them in every book we pick up. We hear them on the radio, in our music, everywhere. But is there a difference between those two terms, sex and gender? And if so, does it matter? What is the difference? So give us some insight on that. Yeah, thanks for asking. There is a difference and that's some of where the confusion lies. So I might fill out the form that asks me my gender and that's actually technically not correct because the answer would be feminine rather than female, okay? Uh, So the difference technically is sex is by a biological category, right? So you have X chromosome, XX chromosome, XY. You might have XY, right? Uh, Jesus said that some are born eunuchs. There there are sexual minorities that's a biological category, Um, but that's what sex is talking about. But then gender actually didn't really even exist uh, as we are using it to refer to masculinity and femininity. It was really a language category until the last hundred years. So it it was a language category. If you think about a ship as a she, right? She sails or a city as as a she, particularly in like a language like French. Uh, that has feminine and masculine endings. Greek has masculine and feminine endings. That doesn't mean a ship is is a girl, right? Mm. But it's a it's a language category that help people know what how to form a word. And so a sexologist said, "Hey, we actually need a word that distinguishes masculinity and femininity from sex, male and female." Uh, And so gender became the category for the social outworking of our biological sex. So the synonym for gender, those synonyms are going to be masculine, feminine, whereas the synonyms for sex will be male, female, intersex. Okay. So, but it's extremely confusing when then we mesh them all together and a form, a government form might even ask me my gender. 
And you don't want to go around correcting people either. But that's part of where the confusion happens when particularly believers that I talk to sort of bristle when they hear the phrase that gender is a social construct. Because often they think you're saying biology is a social construct. Interesting. And you can see where if you're thinking male and female is a is a social construct, you're going, no, it's no, not absolutely not. God made this and it's beautiful and it's genetically different and it's chromosomally different. While our conversation partners often mean we're talking about in Kenya, if a woman is a roofer, that's considered women's work. And in the US, if a woman is up on a roof hammering, it's not, it doesn't fall in the category of feminine, right? Of what we would think of. But, and that's what it means that it's a social construct that the very same behavior in a different setting might even switch what is acceptable. So in one country, it's feminine for the women to be driven by their husbands in a car. In another country, it's feminine for the woman to drive and serve her husband. Exact same behavior, but it, it express, might express something that is exactly the opposite. And so gender is the study of that sort of behavior and what makes the 1700s decide that men should wear hose and high heels and have flowing, flowing long hair and pretty clothing and that's masculine. Whereas if a man in America in the 21st century wears hose and high heels, we would not typically put him in the masculine category. So where this especially is important for us as parents, and again, as conversation partners, is that sometimes in our effort to appreciate that God made them male and female and want to see a distinction between man and woman, we live into stereotypes. So if you have a man who wants to do ballet and he's very good at it, he might put up with a lot of flack. Uh, I have friends that never wanted to play football and their fathers were terribly disappointed in them because they weren't the quote masculine sons that they wanted, but they might be brilliant artists. Uh, and so that's where we can cause some confusion because if we say a certain behavior is masculine or feminine, when God has given us a broad range within be the beautiful design of man and woman and male and female and, and how masculinity and femininity expresses itself. If you can feel like you don't fit the box, then you might start questioning your sex. Yeah. And so speaking of that, how much of that uh, you talked about historically, there, there's kind of an instance of what, how we might think about or an example of how that might be confusing historically when men used to wear tights and high heels, whatever. But is that now, is that more of an American ideal that men should be football players and bold? You're talking about in Kenya, this woman's on the roof building. So, but is America really hung up on these ideals? Well, every culture has its standards or its ideals. And so a man washing dishes in, in Culiacan, Mexico, I'm told, is not manly behavior. Okay, so every culture has its sort of social constructs for what's acceptable and what's not. And one of the things that I love about Jesus Christ is that in his culture, it was considered very unmanly to have someone touch your body without your permission. So if someone is doing violence to you, then that's a huge violation of your manhood. 
So for Jesus to volunteer to allow violence to be done to him, he's sacrificing his man card. Wow. For the gospel, right? Or if you have a husband in a culture that says it's not manly for you to do dishes and you're serving your wife or you're serving the church by doing that, then you're putting Christ's likeness above the cultural norms. The goal isn't to fit the cultural norms, although the goal is also not to destroy as many of them as possible either, but it's to, our goal as believers is to be Christ-like, and that is the ultimate trump card. I remember my father, he was about 6'2", dark-haired, masculine body, when our church would have a spaghetti dinner, it would go straight to the dishwasher and be in the back serving the church by doing dishes. And what an example that was to me. Uh, he wasn't saying, I'm too good to do what many people considered women's work was working in the kitchen. It was, if Jesus could wash poop off disciples' feet, then I can man the dishwasher, <laughs> right? I, I can run it. Yes. I love that. So, and you're right, that has set up a lot of the confusion. How can we speak in a way differently or how do we help change that conversation a little bit or those identifying what gender and sex is to a typical person, you know? Lots of different ways. One is to know who we are. Like a lot of people root our view of man and woman in Genesis 3, which is the chapter about the fall. And we read that he will rule her and she will desire him. And there's a big argument over what that means. And also whether it means man was made to rule woman. Is God just saying this is a result of sin or is it saying this is God's new plan? That's starting in Genesis 3. We need to start in Genesis 1, which is what were we made for? We were made to image God, male and female. So it's not that a man is imaging God more than a woman. God is not a human. God the Father, God the Son came in the flesh in the incarnation. But God is a spirit. A spirit doesn't have X and Y chromosomes, right? So how we know God is completely by metaphor. The door, the bread, the living water. Uh, and so God is spirit. And, and he says, uh, let, let us make humanity. Let us make Adam is the word, and it's the word for dirt. And he makes the Adam out of the dirt. And initially the Adam is them, it's not Adam. It's, it's male and female. And what does he make them for? He tells them to have to do two things. He makes us for two tasks. tasks. One is to be fruitful and multiply. And that is not just women's work, right? It takes two to tango. And, and in the New Testament, we see sort of a shift on that to Paul is staying single, John the Baptist is single, Jesus is single, but multiply disciples. So if we, if we then read back in the New Testament and look at that plan, God's initial plan is to multiply worshipers throughout the earth. That's our task. However, we can, whether it's biologically through married people that are fertile, whether it's people like me who went through infertility and never, never gave birth, but I'm, hopefully I'm flourishing and making disciples. It, it can be people who are choosing to be celibate. It's going gonna, it's gonna to be widows. It's going to be all sorts of different configurations, but all of us are called to be fruitful and to multiply worshipers throughout the earth. And the other task 
that humans are given by God is to rule and subdue the earth. And we tend to, to gender that and say, he's made to rule, she's made to multiply. But that isn't how it worked. They're both made as co-partners, co-regents together. They need each other to rule and to multiply, make worshipers. So what that means is women were made for leadership. And so were men, but not in sort of an autonomous rebellion for either male or female, right? We need each other. We don't even have to know how we need each other. And that's where we get into trouble sometimes, I think. It'll be some people say things like women bring relationships to the table and men bring management. And the minute you say that, you think, oh, I know a good female manager and a guy who's really relational and some guys who aren't very, should not be managers, right? And so that's what I meant by stereotype. It's very easy to make our lists of what we think of as manly and think of as feminine and then think that becomes the goal for me to become like that. And we are never given that goal. What goal are we given? Love, joy, peace. Like Christ-likeness is what we're supposed to be aiming for. So if we're aiming for Christ-likeness in a female body and we're aiming for it in a male body or an intersex body, then what that means is our focus is on character. And you can have the exact, uh, you can have the same behavior, a father reading to a little girl and a mother reading to a little girl, same behavior, but one can be an intensely masculine behavior. One is fatherly and one is motherly. You don't have to pursue being fatherly or being motherly. You pursue being parently with character, right? And as a byproduct of that, you're a good father. You're a good mother because your focus has not been on how can I act female? <laughs> you are female. Yeah. That's interesting because um, I just, I think of the way that I was brought up to think about roles and just what you were talking about, how we think, oh, that's kind of a masculine behavior. That's what he takes care of. That's what she takes care of. And they were, they were a little more, well, they were fairly defined, especially compared to now. And I think about um, my children, they think very differently. I mean, this this generation thinks very differently than the way we were influenced. So what do you see as far as the, the roles or the working out of gender roles? How do you see that changing in this younger culture? Because it's, it's changed dramatically. Yeah. Great question. And I think that's where some of us who were older and had much more clearly defined roles of what male and female look like, and then had friends who were really conflicted because they didn't fit. And it, it could be devastating, really. And so one thing is to for us to look at a younger generation and say, we have some things to learn. In the same way they have some things to learn from us, you don't have to push every boundary, right? We can also say, you know, they're much more focused on gifting. So if one of you is good at balancing the checkbook and one of you isn't so great, why divide that according to your chromosomal makeup? Why not divide that according to what works best for your gifting. The same, the opposite is true. If you both despise doing the dishes, it shouldn't fall on her because she's a girl necessarily, right? You both do work that you despise because the household needs it. So early in our marriage, I, I despise grocery shopping. My husband loves a good hunt. He loves 
going to the store and finding the best deal and analyzing the per unit cost. That nothing makes my eyes glaze over faster. But I really don't mind picking up socks and doing other other chores like doing the dishes. So we agreed fairly early on. Why do what we hate? I agree. He will almost never have to do the dishes. Uh, and I almost never have to do the grocery shopping. And we're both happy with that. So I, I think that our, our younger friends, I see this in seminary students all the time, right? Because a lot of them are in their late 20s. And, and a lot of them are looking much more at what am I good at? What are my giftings? How can I serve in my gifting? And I had a student tell me, and he was visiting churches and you know, when you're a visitor and trying to decide if there's a church you want to go to, you want to sit in the back. You don't want any attention on you. You just want to scope it out. And he said, I visited a Sunday school class and he said they divided into small groups. And I ended up in a group with a couple of women and myself, and they handed me the curriculum guide and said, okay, leave this group. You're a guy. And wow. Yeah. Because, you know, whoever was leading had the idea that men lead the discussion and women don't. Yes. And he said, and that was really good for me to hear because so often I tend to think of that scenario from a woman's point of view, because I'm a woman and think if I love to lead a good discussion, why did you just hand it to the visitor? But also what pressure that puts on the guys to always be a teacher if they have the gift of help, so if they have the gift of administration. Absolutely. Uh, so it goes both ways, right? It, asking that question of what is the best way of using our gifts? Definitely. Okay, so you've touched on a little bit of this, but so how would you define biblical manhood and biblical womanhood? I'm really glad that you asked that. I wouldn't is my answer. And so, and here's here's what has happened sometimes in how we've misused the Bible in that. We have said, what does a manly man do? Well, you know, Jacob was hunting and Joseph was sort of indoors. And we've looked at what do some Bible characters do. But even in doing that, we have looked through our own cultural lens. I've never heard in those discussions, well, Jesus cooked fish, right? Or that the deacons were serving the widows, the Greek widows in Acts chapter six. Like we're still sort of looking at where are we finding what we expect to find? We do the same thing with a Proverbs 31 woman. You know, we might be saying things like, a, a, you know, a godly woman stays home, but if she's out buying a field, she's not at home. So we, even in that passage, we might be picking and choosing what we expect to find based on our cultural outworking of masculinity and femininity. That is not to say I don't believe in masculine and feminine. I certainly do. And I don't think blurring the lines on purpose is is a good thing it's just i don't think we have to determine what the lines are and then pursue them that there's a much broader range of feminine behavior and masculine behavior than what we often give credit for right okay you mentioned uh, a couple of times just the fruit of the spirit love joy peace so how how does living that out Let's just talk a little bit more, more about that. How does living that out really challenge some of our social norms regarding masculinity and femininity? That was kind of a new concept to me, the fruit of the spirit, which who doesn't love fruit of the spirit? I mean, I mean, we, you find all over the Bible, you know, that we're called to a certain character and we're in the New Testament. We are called to be Christ-like, to that Christ be formed in me. 
to be conformed to the image of Christ. What we don't see is be conformed to womanhood, be conformed to manhood. And, and in 1 Corinthians 11, we have the word interdependent. It's that we need each other. We, we shouldn't be segregating. You know, I don't really like segregated Bibles, right? Because it's my friends in Europe say only Americans make those. Like other places say, if it's the Bible, we actually want more eyes on the text. We want more variety and different kinds of people looking at it together. So um, I don't know if that answers your question. Yeah, just the that the, the thinking of um, looking through the lens of the fruit of the spirit on how Christians should behave, not so much on those roles, helps us live out who we are in Christ. I can think of with a student. So she was trying to decide. She was faced with two choices. One was to go to a wealthy kids camp and minister for the summer. And one was to go to an African country, developing world. It was a little more dangerous. And she said, I assumed I was supposed to go to plan A to the camp because I'm a woman and courage is for men. She's like, I, I really thought courage was for men. I hadn't really thought about the fact that Esther was showing a lot of courage, right? And so she she watched a film that we showed about some believing women during suffrage and the right to, to vote and how many believers there were that really felt that that was important. And the courage, some of, some of these women went to jail for fighting for the right for women in the US to vote. And she was really surprised and kind of challenged. And she came and talked to me afterward and said, you know how sometimes your heart beats when you feel like the Holy Spirit might be talking to you and there's a little bit of fear, but a little bit of maybe. She said, that's, I feel like I'm supposed to go to Ethiopia this summer. Like that I have, I have totally used the wrong reasons. It's not that that camp is worthless and I couldn't go. She's like, I was just going for the wrong reasons. I was choosing the safe thing, but women were made for courage too. So she was moving from what seemed to be a sort of a cultural norm for femininity and trying to put kingdom values above that cultural norm. Often it fits the cultural norm. Things like taking food to people who are shut-ins that is not famous work is underrated, right? Like lots of, Jesus is always talking about doing things in secret and it's often caring for the vulnerable, the least of these, that it has been quote relegated to women's work that we should all be embracing. But to filter our decisions through what is Christ-like and what puts the kingdom first. Here's another example. Often when people come to seminary, often when men come to get trained at Dallas Seminary, their wives work full-time so that they don't have to work for six years, that, that their husbands can get through faster so they can go into full-time ministry faster so they can minister together more quickly. And so... I, I heard from a young man who said that his church wouldn't let him serve in leadership because he needed to man up and be the provider based on an unfortunate translation of uh, if you don't provide for your own, you're worse than an unbeliever, which actually has no male pronouns in the Greek. The male pronouns are in English. And that's uh, fascinating. Yes. So, right. It's really saying if someone has widows, that one should care for one's own. And if one does not care for one's own, one is worse than an unbeliever. 
And about eight verses later, it says if a Christian woman has widows, she needs to take care of them because this is written to a culture with no nursing homes, no meals on wheels, no nurses. I like you're the bait, you're the person bathing them. So we have male nurses in America today. That's fine. But they didn't have that in Paul's day. So it, that was falling on the women to do holy work. Wow. Okay. You said a couple of things. I have a question. Maybe you could speak into that. How much of this has to do with power or a balance of power or a shift? in? I don't know exactly how to phrase that, but just there's a, uh, even listening to this, um, this student saying, I think I need to go kind of this easier route because the harder one is almost like a power thing. Like, I'd be afraid to really use my power over there because I really am supposed to fit in this little rut over here or this little path. So one of the questions I have my students ask is if they're feeling an impulse to sort of push for, for a woman to do something that she's generally being prohibited from doing, I say, shift it to a friend. If you have a friend who wants to do it and is being prohibited, would you stand up for her and say, the body of Christ is losing something by her not being allowed to do that? And that shifts it from the accusation of power, right? Because the minute I'm saying, hey, I should be able to get to pray in public, then people assume, right or wrong, that I want power. But if I'm saying, you know, Claudia should be able to stand and pray in public because Paul assumes women are going to pray in public in 1 Corinthians 11. That sounds very different, right? I'm noticing somebody else's giftedness and trying to open a door for them. And so, but I also think, like I shared the story of my male student, often guys want to give away power and they're told they're not being manly and they need to man up by taking charge and being the spiritual leader when they might be more inclined. I can think of an example from a, a marriage conference. They, they might be more inclined to make a decision in concert with their wives. And they're being told, no, you need to man up and be the spiritual leader. But I can think of an example where Paul says, when it comes to abstaining for the sake of prayer, he actually doesn't say you're the spiritual leader, so to decide for your family and lead them in this way. He assumes that if you're mature, that you can come to a place of mutual consent. It's how we decide where we're going to eat at a restaurant, right? Like, I love that. You're not arguing over who has the right to choose. Often mature people are saying, no, 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 we did it my way last time. Let's, let's do what you want this time. It's true. That's very true. I love that. So how would you, or what would you say to churches today that are trying to walk through various gender and sex yeah. issues with their people? How would you like to encourage them to continue those conversations or to just move it to the down the road a little bit? Well, it really depends on what you're talking about. And here's what I mean by that. If you're talking about transsexuality, if you're talking about same-sex attraction, that, that is a separate conversation from what I'm talking about today. What I'm talking about is if we're in a church, well, okay, here's, here's some examples. If I have a daughter and she wants to play with trains, and she wants to wear overalls, don't freak out, right? If my daughter wants to throw mud in somebody's face, that's worth doing a thing about, right? 
But re-looking at what is the behavior she's trying to do and is it really a violation or is it within that broad spectrum that maybe my spectrum is too narrow, but she's but it's very culturally influenced. And there might be other cultures where it would be perfectly acceptable for her to want to do that. And so this is where as, as missionaries going into other cultures, at times American Christians have exported our norms and said, you have to wear a suit to church instead of your national outfit, right? Or, you know, we might, we will even look at, a, at, you know, a kilt and call it a skirt, which is so offensive to our friends, right? Because in our view, men don't dress like that. It's like, yeah, men, men can. I don't recommend that men in America wear a skirt. No. But, right? But, but, it, but, it's sending a very different, but it's sending a very different message in a different culture. So our, our goal is, uh, one of our many goals, is to not put our kids in boxes unnecessarily. Well, and ourselves as well. So, so here's an example in a marriage. If I think there are a lot of women who are married to really good guys, but because they have the alpha male view of what the ideal is, if their husband is not comfortable standing up on stage preaching a sermon, then they, they might think he's not that much of a spiritual person. When in fact, he might be walking to the dishwasher to wash dishes at a spaghetti dinner. And we, we might miss it. Like we put that on them of sometimes people are really awesome persons, but we have a certain ideal of what they're supposed to act like. And we miss the Christ likeness in it. Who is that church treasurer that's hiding in, all, in an office that we never have an appreciation for, that we never go out of our way to notice? And what messages are we sending to men and women alike that you don't fit the norm or you don't fit the ideal? And typically in American churches, teaching is the, the exalted gift, right? So how can we affirm those other gifts? It might have gender overlap in that. Mm -hmm. Well, I really like what you've talked about with us today, addressing the confusion a little bit. And it's just raised some other questions in my own mind. I look back in my experiences and being, you know, at the same church for 30 years or whatever, and watching it transform from a place we once were in a way that we encourage women to be, you got to be the stay-at-home mom, you got to support your husband, you got to stay in this role. Bingo. Bingo. And and it's not anymore. All of a sudden I started seeing, and I I feel like I was a part of that too, of saying, you know what, in some cases that is definitely exactly where she needs to be, but let's don't penalize a woman because she feels drawn or called or led to a place that's going to love and serve her family, her husband, but also, as you said, step into her giftings and really gives her the freedom to live in the fruit of the spirit, to live it out. I am so glad you gave that example, because I think one of the gifts of COVID has been more moms and dads working from home. And it used to be before the industrial revolution, mom and dad were at home and the kids might be in the house for a few hours helping with chores. And then they go out to the field and help pick pears and maybe go back and forth, but they were with mom and dad all day. When the factory came, then 
ideally when when a family hit the middle class one of you was home with the kids because somebody had to after once we passed child labor laws for a while the kids were there too but right and so it's easier for mom too because mom is typically the one who's pregnant she's nursing and so that's how we divided the labor after the industrial revolution in the west but that wasn't the ideal it was the i it was the best we could do with what we had but to then when we've moved past the factory to a world where you can both have a laptop and both mom and dad be at home or both shift you know one of you might take a night shift or a three-quarter shift or whatever and you're both doing meaningful work but you're also both with the kids assuming you have kids then that's really closer to the ideal but because we have in our minds this division of labor that came out of the factory era then we think it's actually not progress when in fact kids with dad more hours than they have been is really good kids need moms and dads right good studies show kids have a better sense of humor if dad's around more and I'm not surprised because my husband would throw my daughter way up in the air, way higher than I would have. And she would laugh and laugh. And I'm thinking, you're going to hurt that child. So I think it's it's been really great to see a little more flexibility in the workforce. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Benefited everybody. Yeah. Um, well, as we just kind of wrap up our, our uh, conversation here, anything else that you would just like to, you, know, you want to just put the exclamation point on it or anything before we go? I think as a as an adjunct to something that that we talked about relating to marriage, and that is it it used to be that the way Protestants talked was that a woman's ideal is marriage and children. And that is a very great calling, but it is not every woman's calling. And in fact, before the Reformation, being a nun was the spiritual ideal. And they, you know, the Roman Catholic Church, in my opinion, went too far towards celibacy as the ideal. But then the Protestants emptied the monasteries and went the other extreme to where everybody's got to be married and have kids. So I think for one thing, I would tell parents, instead of saying, I'm praying for your spouse or who you'll marry someday, I would add if in there. I'm praying that if it's God's will for you to marry that the spouse that you're given, you know, I'm praying for that person. If you get married instead of when you get married, just that little subtle difference from a parent can change the gendered expectation of what it means to be a mature adult. And we so often have communicated that maturity is marriage and kids rather than maturity is maturity. (laughs) It's ultimately Christ-like maturity all the better. When Paul says, "I when I became a man, I put away not, not, feminine things, right? I put away childish things, opposite in Paul's mind, the opposite of man, uh, of manning up isn't as opposed to being feminine. It's as opposed to being immature. Immature. So when he says be a man, he's not telling all the women act manly. He's meaning as opposed to an immature person. Mm. Very good. Well, thank you so much for joining us today and just kind of broadening our horizons a little bit with the gender and and scripture conversation that we've had here today. I really appreciate you. Thank you. Sandra has resources for us at beyondordinarywomen.org. And we also have various resources on our video and our podcasts on this topic. Go to beyondordinarywomen.org and you'll find them there. Thank you. 
Thanks for listening to the Beyond Ordinary Women podcast. You can find more podcast episodes and resources for women in leadership by going to beyondordinarywomen.org. This podcast is produced by Beyond Ordinary Women Ministry. Our production team includes Evelyn Babcock, Kay Daigle, Deborah Herring, and Sharifa Stevens. Theme music, Back in Stride by Don Miller, used courtesy of Christine Miller.